Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. If you've been listening to our podcast, you may have tuned into our episode on Egyptian mummification and the long history and evolution of mummification there from a, a purely environmental mummification into this ultra-refined uh, mortuary art. Yeah, we went over the history of thousands of years of how mummification evolved. And during that episode, we we said to you, the audience, hey, you know, there are lots of other forms of mummification out there. We're not going to be able to do them justice in this one episode. So do you want to hear more? And the answer seemed to be yes. Yeah. Enough people said yes that we went ahead and did what we were going to do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> more yeah. Well, this one's too fascinating to pass up, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Because in this, we're getting into, um, I mean, there's still elements of environmental mummification and uh, funerary um, mummification, mm-hmm. but there's this added element of self-mummification. So, and of course, when I started researching this, it immediately made me think of seppuku, which is uh, another form of suicide in the same region, in Japan. Uh, and this is essentially suicide, in fact, so much so that it was banned by the Japanese government in uh, the 19th century. Yeah, I think we can't help but draw a line between these two forms of ultimately highly ritualized self-destruction. Yeah, uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say that this has some elements in common with... Uh, uh, Dr. Kevorkian, for instance. I mean, it's on a much longer term scale. Yeah. Uh, you're not, it, this takes like 10 years, I think, right? To self mummify. Yeah, it's definitely a deliberate act in which the individual is accepting death and, uh, and really speeding it along to a certain degree and taking a certain amount of command over the process. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, enough, enough teasing on our part here. What are we talking about here? This is the Soku. Shinbutsu of Japan. Yeah, this practice lasted from about uh, 774 uh, Common Era until the 20th century. And aside from 19 mummified members of the 12th century Fujiwara clan, it constitutes the only mummification rite in Japanese culture. One of our resources uh, for this uh, episode is an excellent piece by Ken Jeremiah titled Buried Alive, the Forgotten Practice of Self-Mummification. And he does a great job outlining this uh, practice that uh, was carried out by certain Shingon Buddhists who sought to serve Miroku Bosatsu, the uh, Bodhisattva of the future, who will arrive on Earth some 5,670,000,000 years from now. Yeah. So this is essentially a, a, a Buddha that will arrive on Earth tremendous amount of time in the future. And, and so from what I was reading, uh, he, he is said to currently reside in what is called Tusita Heaven, which is this place that is depicted as uh, flooded with rotating light. And this rotating light re- apparently reveals a 49-story palace. Uh, and it is a, you know, as most heavens are, a paradise with no sorrow or sin. The thing that's really interesting here about this particular group is uh, the Sokushinbutsu practicing. It was in Yamagata, and there were members of a specific sect that brought together uh, parts of esoteric Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, and some kind of local spiritual practices. So this is, I guess, like like uh, the 
a version of mysticism, right? Like oh, Buddhist mysticism, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we'll we'll discuss. You see this, um, you know, like with any religion, religions don't travel unchanged. Uh, any yeah. culture they enter, they end up absorbing pieces of uh, either pre-existing uh, religions. They merge with a uh, with cultural um, values, and so as Buddhism. Uh, emerges from India, travels through China, uh, into Japan, it ends up picking up all these different elements. Sort of like how when we uh, talked about the serpent and the rainbow in one episode, like the Vudan culture incorporates aspects of local culture in Haiti as well as Catholicism into the the mysticism and, and myth of zombies. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes any discussion of uh, of religious worldview fascinating, mm-hmm. is that, that ever-changing uh, nature of it. So these guys uh, in particular thought that they could achieve special powers, uh, obviously one of which was to live for five billion years and meet this Buddha in the future. But uh, other things where they they practiced meditating in caves or under these really cold waterfalls. And then some of them even stabbed out their own eyes and performed other forms of mutilation on themselves uh, in order to gain these powers that were part of their beliefs. Yeah, there's a there's a huge... um trend here with a just a complete uh I mean they were they were aesthetics they were yeah. rejecting the physical world um showing them in almost a contempt for the physical world in their devotion to uh to the spiritual realm and uh, and you know there are definitely some kind of cool quasi sci-fi elements here too because essentially they're they're yeah. wanting to put their body into a a, a spiritual suspended animation so yeah. that they can reach this far distant time and place yeah absolutely I- I think you should uh, explain that process because it's it's pretty wild. It reminds me of that Darren Aronofsky movie, The Fountain. Have you seen that? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of that. This idea that like it, you're not even reincarnated, but like there uh, you will exist in this other state for this long, long period of time, so that you can ultimately achieve transcendence. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would not be surprised if uh, if he was inspired by yeah. some of these Eastern models. Yeah. So. In order to reach that 5.6 billion year point in the future and uh, meet uh, the Bodhisattva of the future and and serve him, um, you have to self-mummify as a living Buddha, which uh, Jeremiah explains as a as a means again to reach this uh, Tuatsu heaven, uh, which is the current residence of uh, the Bodhisattva of the future. Uh, so you have a what you do is you engage in a slow and meditative approach to the death point, and it's only then that the monk uh, can self-guide their soul through the void uh, to a realm of his choosing. And this reminds me of uh, of elements of Tibetan Buddhism as well, where there's this huge yeah. emphasis on what happens uh, immediately following death, and you've got to be prepared for that journey uh, between this incarnation and the next. And as we learned, there is a connection. Uh, between Chinese and Tibetan Buddhism and this practice. They're culturally connected in a way, and we'll get to that later, but we wanted to start with these guys. The, and I say guys, they were all men. Yeah. The Sokushin Butsu practice. Now, another source we're looking at uh, is mummification in the ancient and new world. Uh, this is a wonderful resource for anything related to mummies. We'll include a link. Yep. For this, this is our Atlantic go-to page. every time we do something about mummies. Yeah, yeah from uh, Anna Maria Rosso. And uh, she classifies Shingon self-mummification uh, as a case of entering a kind of undead suspension in which the monk's body is preserved for resurrection upon uh, uh, Mikoru Bosatsu's arrival. So kind of two different takes. Yeah. That are probably 
amounting to the same thing. Either I you're sticking so. around until he comes or you're preserving your body as kind of an anchor for your wandering spirit to go and serve him now. Yeah, and so the first, I guess, founder of this that practiced this was Kobu Daishi. And he was uh, alive from 774 to 835. And the idea here is that he remained in this particular state within the Gobyo Mausoleum. And monks to this day, right, still bring food to him as he awaits the arrival of their, you know, this, this Buddha in heaven, essentially. Yeah, there's some wonderful images of monks bringing, it's a highly ritualized affair. It's not yeah. just someone pushing a, right. a tray, a cafeteria right. tray under a, a crypt door or anything. It's a, it's a, it's very ritualized and they bring this fine chest up with, uh, with food for him. One of the things I read was that supposedly his nails and hair continued to grow for years after his death. Uh, and monks would go in there when they would feed him, they mm-hmm. would also give him a trim and redress his body. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, they'd go back another 30 years later or whatever, and there'd just be dust. And it, the dust was the rags of the robes, essentially. Huh. Uh, and they'd clear it out and do the whole process all over again. But the myth is that his hair and nails kept growing, and so they had to cut it. Huh. So in all of this, um, obviously we need to, we need to state that, uh, we're dealing with religious interpretations and often yeah. then supernatural layers all on top of a body's decomposition or lack of decomposition. So as we go through all of this, you know, keep an open mind about it, but also, you know, don't feel, I mean, feel free to, uh, to pick at it a little bit with your mind. Yeah. And I think like the Egyptian mummies, mm-hmm. uh, there is of course the cultural and religious aspect that comes into play that, uh, you know, uh, promotes this activity, but then there's a science behind it to actually achieve mummification in such a way that the body doesn't decay. Right. Yeah. Cause, okay. So, so what's the goal here? The goal is to gradually reduce one's physical body to a withered state, just like how much of a mummy can I become while yeah. still alive, uh, while just meditating and trying to reach that death point, and then to remain dry and, for the most part, incorruptible. So in order to achieve this state, a would-be Sokushumbitsu uh, first uh, practices a starvation diet. Okay, And this consists of just nuts and berries and tree bark and roots. And uh, this phase apparently lasts, uh, would last between three and ten years, however long it took to uh, whittle that body down to oh. a skin and bone state. Yeah. Uh, Atlas Obscura. They're essentially starving themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, that diet, did you know, like, the, it was designed specifically to strip them of body fat. That's why yeah. they specifically ate those things. And in fact, some of the herbs and nuts that were involved in that diet were designed to, I mean, they didn't have the science of this, but it, it, they inhibited bacterial growth. So that was part of the process here of helping you mummify yourself. Yeah, and I guess that could conceivably cut down on decomposition, too, because so yeah. much of the decomposition, as we discussed in the previous mummification episode, is coming from within. Yeah, so keep absolutely. that in mind as well. You're dealing with early people that are looking at a corpse's decomposition, they're often thinking of it as an externalized um, decomposition, the elements making the body decompose, when really it's uh, most of the decomposition is occurring within as the body begins to um, 
fall apart. The bacteria feeds on everything. Yeah, and as part of that, too, they weren't even allowed to eat specific things as part of their diet, too. So, like, cereal, wheat, rice, foxtail millet, proso millet, and soybeans were all things they had to stay away from because of, you know, it would promote bacterial growth. Now, uh, Atlas Obscura also has a has a, a page about uh, self-mummification, and they mention that the poisonous sap from the Orushi tree... Uh, was also used that the monks consume this to purge their bodily yeah. fluids and and uh, supposedly re- re- repel scavenging parasites. Yeah, and this is brutal. I mm-hmm. like uh, the several accounts that I read of this. I mean, purge bodily fluids is accurate, but I mean it was violent uh, vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but they did it, you know, for this reason. It was part of the sacrifice of being able to make this journey through time. And in fact, here's another uh, interesting tidbit that I read. They did x-rays of some of these monks, uh, and they found that there were river stones in their guts. So apparently they ate those, too. I don't know what the promotion would be, like what, you know, hmm. what, how that would affect the mummification process. But they were filling their stomachs with stones. Huh. And uh, it goes without saying, if anyone out there is looking to lose weight, um, yeah, please don't try this diet. Yeah. Please don't try the um, the self mummification diet. Uh, <laughs> though I could see that being the next big thing. That yeah. Kicks off. Okay, so you're finally reduced to this state of walking, or maybe just sitting. Yeah, death. I wonder if they could even walk. I would imagine yeah. the other monks maybe had to help them move, get from place to place. Yeah, because they have to be pretty frail at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point. They, you're buried alive, uh, with a little help from your friends, obviously, um, for three years with only bamboo breathing tubes uh, to sustain you uh, down there in the darkness. And here you meditate, you recite sutras, and you periodically ring a bell um, to let everyone know that you're still down there, still <laughs> meditating, until eventually you're going to die from uh, dehydration. Yeah, so the idea here is that they're when they're buried alive, they're buried alive in the lotus position. So I think that the box or whatever they're in is designed to fit their bodies in the lotus position. And then when you stop ringing that bell, I think that you ring the bell once a day, basically mm-hmm. to say, like, hey, I'm still moving down here. Uh, and when it stops, that's when they take the tube out uh, and they seal the tomb. Uh, and there's a thing here, too, that the number three is very important to this ritual. They did things in threes, uh, and it was particular to the Buddhist priesthood. The reason why is that apparently there's three jewels in Buddhism, the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dharma. And then there's the three great secrets, the secret of the body, which are mudras, which we know over here as, you know, yoga practice, basically. And then there's the secret of speech, mantras, and the secret of the mind, which is meditation. So that's why they wait for three years before they pull them back up. And so when they do pull them up, uh, the first thing you check is the, the corruption level of the body. If it's uncorrupted, then, the, then hey, success. Self-mummification has taken place. You dress uh, the monk in robes and put them on display for veneration. If the body's rotted, however, uh, you're going to perform an exorcism and uh, bury the corpse. Yeah, that two extremes. One is you're venerated forever. The other is this is a hideous, disgusting thing. We have to exercise it. <laughs> like you don't exercise just a regular dead body, right? But this this process went wrong, and it you know within that practice, I can sort of understand how they would they would see it as being the opposite of holy. Yeah, and as we'll uh, discuss later, you see this. This interesting um, dichotomy here where on one hand, there's still very much this idea that a a corpse is a thing that is not uh, 
it's not pleasant. It's not yeah. to really be dealt with. You bury it and you get rid of it. Except if it's the body of a very special individual. If, if the body itself right. is in this strange, undeath, uncorrupted state. And then it is an object of veneration. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to add here, they they had a couple little cheats that they worked around here, too, after they pulled mm-hmm. the bodies out. It's true that, you know, if the body itself hadn't decayed, that that was when they venerated them. But after they pulled it out, if it hadn't decayed, they uh, would preserve it by adding incense to the body, and then they would um, dry it out over a charcoal fire. Yeah, and this is this kind of gets back to the original idea from our, our Egyptian mummies episode, where you have uh-huh. mummification begin as environmental process, and yeah. when the environmental process fails due to different environmental circumstances, such as more elaborate uh, tombs that are being used, right. then you have to uh, begin employing mummification techniques uh, to to fake what you're not achieving naturally. Yeah. And so we see a bit of that here. It's like, okay, if it has corrupted uh, or if it looks like it's corrupting a little bit, what are some cheats we can apply to get it back into that uh, that desired zone? Yeah, in the same way that the Egyptians started off by burying their bodies in the dry sands, and that would help to prevent them from decaying, they're in Japan just using charcoal fire and smoke basically to achieve the same thing. Less than 30 Japanese monks are known to have completed this grueling journey to the death point. And, of course, we have no idea if they found uh, the uh, Bodhisattva Bodhisattva of the future or if they're going to at some point in the distant future. Yeah, I mean, that's still to come. Yeah. Five billion years. That's a ways off. Uh, But the Japanese government, like I said at the top, they did not like this. Uh, And as of the 19th century, it is illegal to do that, though... Some of these monks did continue this practice and into the 20th century, I think like the early 1900s, there were were monks doing this. Um, The majority of which happened at a temple on Mount Yudono called Dainichibu. Uh, And there basically there's an idea that there's a local spring there that has high levels of arsenic in it. So they think that has something to do as well with the mummification process, that somehow arsenic is contributing to this. Uh, and the area around there is where they conducted their exercises. Uh, and in Japanese, the area is called uh, Seninzawa. And that translates into the mountain stream of otherworldly men or swamp of wizards or swamp of immortals, which I like. I like both of those quite yeah, a bit. The swamp, great. swamp of wizards. Swamp of wizards. Yeah. Uh, you can still visit 16 of these uh, Soku Shinbutsus of the 28 that remain. Uh, there were 30 that no, were known to have completed it, but I think that some of them are off limits, you know, for obvious reasons. They're probably pretty fragile. But in various locations around Japan, you can visit these. Uh, the hundreds of people are thought to have attempted this. So that, you know, uh, getting back to that, those exorcisms, there were, that means there were hundreds of these exorcisms of these uh, bodies that did decay. Yeah, and also it's such a grueling uh, endeavor to undertake. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine everyone who started out on this path had the uh, had the fortitude to actually make it to that death point uh, in the original uh, prescribed way. Yeah, I agree, and I, I want to add two uh, stories about two of these monks that I think put it into a little bit of perspective here. And this isn't to say that all of the hundreds of monks that attempted this had these kinds of background, but the the most famous of which 
that you can, I think, still visit is Daijuku Bosatsu Shinyokai Shonen. Uh, and he mummified himself at the age of 96 in 1783, and he's at that Mount uh, Udono Temple. He was a farmer, and the, the story goes that he was a farmer, he was walking along the road one day, and a samurai bumped into him. And the samurai took offense to this and started a fight, essentially. Drew a sword and started a fight. And uh, this farmer only had a walking stick and somehow defeats this samurai and kills him in battle. Huh. Uh but killing a samurai was illegal then, uh, and the punishment was death. So he didn't want to die for defending himself on the road. So he fled to this temple and took up the religious, you know, practice and the name Shinyokai. So that's what led to his eventual, you know, immersion into this culture and then leading on to the self-mummification practice. But I got to say, like, if I got to 96, you know, I'd give it a shot. Yeah, why not? I mean... <laughs> you can uh, you can only be in control of so many different things at that point. Why not be in control sure. of your uh, your journey to the death point? Yeah, and uh, there's another monk known as Tetsu Monkai, uh, who's uh, another part of this uh, order, and he supposedly killed two samurai with a fire hook. I Wait, what's a fire hook? I don't know. Oh, it's bringing <laughs> such fantastic. I was just imagining it was a hook that's on fire, but I, I bet it's like a hook that you use to move charcoals around that, or something that would like make that. Sense. I bet it's that. Yeah. yeah, because we also see this this. Uh, traditional uh, element of the, the common man does not have access to weapons and then uh-huh. must, must uh, create a martial art around common farming yeah. or, uh, you know, or crafting tools. Well, this story was like a little too large for some people to believe. So they looked into it some more and they think what actually happened is he killed a prostitute. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and then like like the other guy fled to the monastery same thing. But this guy, remember how I was talking about how they uh, would cut their own eyes out as mm-hmm. part of practice? He's one of them. He cut out his own eye and threw it into a river because he wanted to pray for a cure for a local eye disease that was infecting the local villages. Huh. So that gives you kind of an idea of this, you know, these practices. I, we, we don't have a lot of information on this, but uh, it's, it's pretty extreme. Yeah, uh, and I believe you were looking into this, and you found that there there is a group that is that is advocating for more um, more access to the existing uh, mummified monks. There. Yeah, my understanding is that it's called the Japanese Mummy Research Group, and that apparently they're responsible for studying you know the mummified monks, and they petition the government for permission to exhume the graves of the ones that they find. But I believe that this was started around the same time that the practice was ending. Okay, so, uh, probably the beginning of the twentieth century. So. Now we're going to uh, venture away from Japan and into China. And particularly, we're going to look at Chan Buddhism. This is a school of Mahayana Buddhism that developed in China from the 6th century uh, CE onward. So here we see a definite merging of Buddhist and Taoist ideas. And it, uh, interesting here is the notion that Buddhism and Taoist sorcery seem to combine into a notion of Buddha as a sort of foreign immortal who achieved uh, some form of undeath. Yeah, there's a fantastic piece that we used for this, uh, well, as one of our sources for this episode that's up on io9 from a couple years ago, I think. And it's, you know what? I didn't realize it until I finished the piece and I rolled back up and I realized it's written by one of my favorite writers over there, uh, a woman named Lauren Davis. Oh yeah, she's good. Yeah, it's, it's some of my favorite stuff on their site is by her, but this is specifically about, uh, in the science and civilization in China, a book which is the, the fifth volume of that series. <laughs> 
uh, and they speculate that the self-mummification originally was a Taoist practice. They note that while Japanese monks are the most famous self-mummifiers, there are deliberate self-mummifications that have also been recorded in China and India as well. So right. this is where, like, clearly there's a connection somehow between these two things. They couldn't have just, especially because they're from the same belief systems, they couldn't have just independently sprung up on their own. Yeah, and so... That's why we're looking at uh, Chan Buddhism and, and some particular examples here among the, some of the Chan masters, because you see um, a, a form of mummification that maybe isn't quite as deliberate and self-destructive as the Japanese models we were right. looking at, but but definitely a similar blueprint. And the idea here is that there, this particular sect of Buddhism, which I was unfamiliar with until we researched this, is known for rejecting empty rituals and unworthy authority figures. Yeah, there's a quote uh, that I was reading in uh, one of the great sources uh, for this section of the podcast, Robert H. Scharf's The Idolization of Enlightenment on the Mummification of Chan masters in medieval China. Uh, he points out there's a, there's a, a quote uh, that the the Chan would use where it says, "If you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha." Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in other words, saying that if you meet somebody claiming to be this great individual, reject them. You know? Yeah, I, I, I've heard that term before, and I've always liked it, but I didn't realize that it originated here. And in fact, that this particular school, you know, the idea was they didn't want to be based around superstition, essentially. Uh, and so it's strange then that they were involved in the mummification thing. Yeah, this is this is definitely a, a fascinating area where you see these merging and at times um, contradictory ideas yeah. coming from the, the the Taoist roots and the Buddhist roots, where on one level, Buddhism, you think of Buddhism and you think of, oh, it's all about not caring it's about uh, about setting aside any uh high levels of anxiety about death or yeah. even life itself that you're you're disconnecting and then uh, with with Taoist sorcery you have a far more supernatural understanding of man's place in the universe and what's possible with the physical body and these two things kind of merge together into one form yeah and i'm sure too that like the political and economic and cultural pressures that were going on in the area at the time contributed to this m- melding. You know? Yeah, the, yeah the, the economic aspect will be interesting when we get into it. Yeah, especially. Um, so w- one thing about this, you know, that's important to say, you, you hinted at it here, is that most Buddhism regards corpses as just lifeless lumps of flesh, right? Yeah. Rotting flesh in particular, and you just dispose of them. It's no longer a person. So again, it's it's a little strange, this veneration thing, but we'll get into, you know, there there is a, a worship that was applied to their abbots in particular. Uh, and this explains their fascination with the possibility of bodies not decomposing. So they thought that if their bodies didn't decompose, that they were incorruptible. And uh, this involved, you know, artificial mummification the same way that we've talked about previously. Uh, but it was thought as a mean to achieve spiritual purity and preserve it within the remains. Yeah. So you see this this idea that an individual is is going to be holy enough, pure enough that there there's going to be residual purity, residual yeah. karma even in the body. Uh, and and the the, the Taoist roots here uh, apparently are that a Taoist master sheds his body like the shell of a cicada, and then his spirit alone ascends into the spirit realm, leaving behind in it this incorruptible body. And the body serves as a kind of anchor for an immortal soul wandering beyond, uh, which which is a, a fabulous yeah. idea that is, is almost science fiction in its elements, mm-hmm. like the idea of, say, a 
a, a body in some suspended state, but the mind is wandering around in some, some sort of virtual reality. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that these abbots, my impression from the reading was that these abbots uh, were venerated because they were very charismatic, and, and the, 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 the followers within their temples and their communities loved them dearly. And so part of this also was that uh, the preservation allowed for the new abbot that would come in, who was maybe a little green and maybe not mm-hmm. known so well, to have a little bit of uh, leeway yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and time to, to get to know them better and build his reputation and charisma uh, while the mummified version of the previous abbot was still there for them to connect with. Yeah, because uh, yeah, the, the center, the, the, the abbot and his uh, charismatic power, it has a lot to do with the support from the community, the support from the government. Yeah. It's like having uh, the lead singer of a band change out, right? <laughs> but imagine if yeah. the new lead singer could say, actually... The old lead singer's right here. He's, he's in this, uh, he's not dead. He's in this undeath state. Uh, uh, so he's technically still here. You can come and venerate him. Yeah. He's still the, the, the ritual and spiritual center of, of the monastery. And, and that's important too. It's, it's not only the outside forces, but the inside forces. It, the, the, the abbot in this undeath state, in this mummified state, remains the rallying point for everyone. Yeah. That's what Black Sabbath should have done is they should have <laughs> mummified Ozzy Osbourne and then had Ronnie James Dio, you know, perform with Ozzy's uh, mummified body on stage or uh, Van Halen could have done it as well. Sammy Hagar performs with the body of David. Lee uh, they had the, uh, the idea of an aged rocker as a mummy. is yeah. just perfect. I yeah, mean, because they just... kind of reached that state on their own. Exactly. Look at any, any <laughs> yes. old uh, rocker and you, get, true. you can easily see a mummification. Yeah. Place. Yeah. Mick Jagger is definitely approaching mummification so okay so the first Chan master mummy that we know of was a guy named Tao Sin uh, and he was alive from 580 to 651 when he passed away at the age of 72 his students wrapped him in lacquered cloth so that they could preserve the miracle of his natural incorruptibility uh, and so like like we were saying this wasn't a you know a normal practice for Buddhism it was sometime in uh, Eastern Han or early six dynasties period the rationale around this changed they wanted to maintain the integrity of of the body and the soul together after death through this kind of preservation. Now, another example that uh, Robert H. Scharf uh, brings out in his piece is that of Sean Wu Wee, who died in 735 at age 99, but he wasn't buried until 740. And according to his biography, he was he was so, quote, imbued with meditation and wisdom that no decay occurred in the five years between death and the tomb. And in 758, 18 years later, his disciples dug him back up and they discovered very little de- decay, or so it said. Again, yeah. you kind of have to throw in a little grain of salt here and there when it comes uh, to the um, the official religious account. So what's the common practices here? So th- it's different from what we were talking about with the Japanese model earlier. They're, it's not self-mummification in the sense that they starve themselves and eat nuts and berries and then bury themselves alive, right? It's not that gory. Uh, it's almost like the kind of mummification, in a lot of ways, uh, similar to Egyptian mummification. Yeah, because you do see these uh, varying levels of, uh, of embalming techniques coming online to to make up for missing environmental factors. Mummification itself in China goes back uh, as far as 206 BCE. Uh, and the, the notion of a lingering soul presence in the body like, may underlie 
all of it. It just yeah. is, it seems to underlie any mummification uh, practice. Yeah, and the spirits of your ancestors still to this day seems to be fairly potent uh cultural idea in China. So they had various preservation practices. Uh, One is just temporary burial, which again has a lot in common with the Egyptian model. Bury them in the ground, and if the ground is dry, then it's going to dry the body out. Drying over a fire, which you mentioned already is another one. Charcoal, yeah. This is my favorite, though. Uh, salt brine uh, <laughs> in a, a used inside of an urn to pickle the body, essentially pickle yeah, the body. Yeah, I read about that one. That is, so you put the body in there and let it soak for, like, years, yeah. right? And then you take it out and mummify it. Ooh. Yeah. And in any of these cases, when you get the body back out, it's uh, it's dried out. You wrap it in various layers, including lacquered cloth. Mm. Then you dress it in robes, and you place it in a, in a position befitting a Chan master. So, uh, from what I was reading, the lacquering process is actually very similar to the same process that they use to produce specific kinds of Buddhist sculptures, and it resulted in a durable finished product. So, I think that that's where they got the idea from. They said, well, let's apply this statue process to, you know, v- venerating our, our uh, elders. Uh, and so, do you want to get into the thing about that there's a technique of placing jade and bone in the nine orifices of the body? Yeah, this is interesting, and I, I don't have a lot of details on this. I, I probably don't have to, to, to employ them. Uh, but the, the, uh, the use of jade is interesting, um, because it was a common uh, Han Dynasty method for the wealthy to be buried in a suit of jade. Yeah. Uh, people may have seen images of this. Uh, it tends to, it's not a, a solid suit of jade, but it has like jade uh, cube, uh, jade squares, you know, okay. jade tiles. Um, and uh, this is because the stone was thought to prevent decay. So if it works on the outside, which there's no evidence that it did, right. uh, but if it worked on the outside, then the magical thinking is that it would work inside as well. Uh-huh. Uh, because it, it's, as with the Egyptian model of, of uh, mummification, you see this continuing struggle to try and figure out where decay is coming from, from the outside or from the inside. Therefore, put the jade on the outside and put it on the inside. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to see uh, a Chinese mummy, uh, definitely take advantage of it. I got to see one uh, at the uh, Museum of the Western Han Dynasty Mausoleum oh, in cool. Guangzhou when I was there a couple of years ago to yeah. get my son. He was not impressed. He was a year and a half and uh, <laughs> did not see the beauty of everything there and uh, cried his head off, but did get to see uh, a fabulous um Restored uh, mummy there with the uh, the jade suit, and that would have oh, been wow. uh, Zhao Mei, the second ruler of the kingdom of Southern Yu. Yeah, I think I've brought up on the show before that I I, I spent some time in my childhood in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. and I lived in China for uh, six or seven weeks on my own actually when I was a teenager, which is kind of a wild story. But I never got to see anything like that. That sounds really cool. Well, apparently there are only a handful of these. Uh, I think there are more than more than ten. Okay. So that, that's about how many have been recovered. Only five have been restored. So, okay. Okay. So I just kind of lucked into getting to yeah. see one uh, uh, while in Guangzhou. So another thing about these uh, specific Chan uh, Buddhist monks, the way that they were preserved, after they were covered in the lacquered cloth, they were gilded as well. Oh, um, yes. So they're... they're, they're there's elements of gold here, right, and, or some kind of metal, and uh, uh, they're dressed in fine robes afterwards as well. So when you saw that one, did it have that kind of shiny exterior? Um, 
I don't remember there being as much of a shiny exterior yeah. uh, so much, but, but the, the jade uh, suit was the thing that made the, the big impact. On yeah, me. and given how old they are, too, I would mm-hmm. imagine over time that, you know, that would kind of fade. Yeah. Um, the, so one of the things about this is that there is a traditional funeral practice, even before this mummification came into effect, in which the abbots were always buried with a portrait of themselves nearby. Uh, and at some point, mummifying the abbot replaced the portrait, the idea of being able to interact with the, you know, the, the abbot and his spirit. So it created a flesh icon. Which yeah. I love that. That's the term that, uh, that Schraff uses in his piece. Yeah. Uh, flesh icon. So they yeah. could use these as both an effigy and a holy relic. But there's also, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is that, um, there's the aspect of interacting with the government here too and the economy. So, uh, a lot of these temples and institutions were supported by government funds. And so if the abbot was very popular with the community and very charismatic and then passed away, there's always the possibility that the government might withdraw funding and think, oh, well, this is no longer an active uh, institution, right? Yeah, yeah, it comes back to the, the lead singer scenario we're exactly. talking about. The lead singer yeah. drops out, then how are you going to keep uh, the support for your product going? So they mummified them in order to keep it active. And again, like we were talking about, yeah, the, the new singer, the new abbot comes in and kind of gets used to the community then and hopefully builds up enough of a following that he too gets mummified. You know, I, I do want to throw in real quick that uh, another fascinating aspect of this uh, that came out uh, in my, my research is that according to Holmes H. Welch, that's a, he's an early 20th century expert on East Asian culture, particularly Taoism and Buddhism, and he's uh, talking about the, the mummification of the bodies. And he points out, of course, the, how they were gilded. But, quote, sometimes the lobes of the ears were lengthened and a dot was placed between the eyebrows, golden skin, long lobes, and the Uma dot were among the 32 sacred marks of a Buddha. The huh. implication was, therefore, that in his lifetime, the monk whose corpse the visitor saw before him had attained Buddhahood. So in this, okay. we see post-mortem body modification, which, yeah. granted, any form of mummification or funerary um, rite, you know, anytime, anything a mortician does yeah. is body modification. But generally, we, we're all about, let's just make it look as much like it did when it was alive. But here we see a modification to make the body look more like the spiritual idea, ideal, uh, as, as, as opposed to just what they were. Which- Definitely. From what I've seen, the photographs uh, during the research, I mean, these do not retain human form in the way that, say, like our... Uh, typical idea of an Egyptian mummy does, right? Right. Uh, because it's not stuffed full of lacquered linen and, and all, all kinds of materials. Uh, but it, it is, you know, designed to be an icon in the same way like a statue would be. And really to be kind of a transhuman body for mm-hmm. a different type of being, which is such a, a fascinating idea. Yeah. And I think there are elements of that in Egyptian um, mummification as well, but they, I think it's often lost on us. And I feel like this example brings out that motif in a, in a new way. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, uh, every time we get into this kind of stuff, I have to think to myself, like, what kind of... Uh, post-death rituals are we going to come up with in the future? You know, like, where are we going yeah. with that? Will we start uh, taking our bodies and, you know, with transhumanism coming along, you know, will we start trying to make them look more alien or something like that? Yeah, we ended up, we, we me and Joe did a, a podcast episode on 
the, the near future of various funeral rites. Yeah. We didn't get into this as much, but um, I can't help but think of RoboCop, remember? Because mm. there's a whole scene where it's like RoboCop meeting his former uh, wife. Oh, yeah. And yeah. someone's pointing out, well, this isn't him. They, we did this to honor him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, if you take right, that the approach. The face is just like glued on over like a robot. Yeah. So, in, yeah. in a sense, he's yeah. buried within RoboCop. He's yeah. kind of like a, yeah. like a Warhammer 40,000 dreadnought where <laughs> the tomb is the robot, which so in a way, RoboCop is a funeral rite. Yeah. And yeah. one that I, I think we should all be open to. Yeah. Why not? Right? It, it, in the movies, it went really well. It did. Yeah, it went great. <laughs> all right. So we've discussed the Soko Shimbitsu. We've talked about uh, the Chan Masters. And those are just two specific examples from East Asian uh, mummification history. And we, we can't get into all of the examples. In this podcast, maybe we'll yeah. come back uh, for more later. You do see related examples, particularly in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, very much uh, the, the same uh, model, I think, as Shan Buddhism, uh, but certainly an area that that deserves its own um, spotlight, perhaps at a later date. Yeah, and in fact, you know, there's, of course, other mummies, too, especially in the American continent. So uh, there's possibility that we could talk about Mayan or Chinchuru mummies in the future, too. So if you're interested, let us know. Yeah, sounds good to me. I am uh, certainly down to do more episodes on global mummification rituals. Me, too. So let us know. There's tons of avenues to get in touch with us. In fact, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr on all of those social media platforms. Platforms. We are under the handle Blow the Mind. That's where you can find us and interact with us. But not only that, we're on Periscope every Friday at noon now, and you can directly interact with us there. We, uh, If you haven't used Periscope before, you get to see us hanging out in front of an iPad and chatting with you. Uh, conversations that we had last week were about the possibility of you, Joe, and I uh, writing our own horror anthology uh, oh. book. Uh, one of our fans suggested that. All right. Well, uh, keep suggesting that. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, you can always visit the site, stufftoblowyourmind.com, where we've got blog posts and videos and all kinds of other content that's not just the podcast. We work hard on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and we've got all kinds of crazy things out there, especially about mummies, right? Exactly. Yeah, we have a, a lot of content about mummies. And I'll make sure to include some links to it in the landing page for this episode, as well as links out to some of these key resources. Sources if you want a deeper dive into the topics. And hey, if you want to reach out to us directly, you don't have to self-mummify yourself. You don't have to slowly poison yourself in a, yeah. in a Buddhist crypt. Yeah, we're here. Instead, just send us an email. You can reach us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 